worship with a reading from Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is the word of the Lord. All right. If you have your Bibles, open them to Job 1. That's right. I said Job. Yep. Buckle up. Uh, you're probably going to have to use your table of contents. If you're new to the Bible, just look for the book of Job. Um, the book as a whole is long. And in some parts, uh, long monologues seem to just drone on if you've ever tried to read uh, the book of Job. From a bird's eye view, it's about a man, wealthy, successful, religious, upright man, um, and his life falls apart. Everything's taking from him, his house, his kids, his livestock, which in those days is like your entire bank account being emptied out. Even his health, it's a real chipper story. If you're down, I'd encourage you to read it. Um, the majority of the book is basically Job and his friends dialoguing, arguing, trying to understand why has God done this to you? And his friends end up representing the dominant theology of the day. His friends end up representing this is how our times think of God and therefore you have sinned and that's why everything's been taken of you and you just need to repent. Um, and his friends, um, they, they intend to represent God but end up apparently missing the mark. And mostly they're saying because you've sinned, you need to repent. And so what these long monologues really are are arguments about who God is and what he is like um, until the very end of the book where God speaks up and he represents himself, uh, which is to me when the book gets exciting. If you ever want a seriously good read, just start Job 38. Um, and the, God, God literally tells the man, put your big boy pants on and I'm gonna ask you questions now. It's phenomenal, it's a phenomenal book. Um, but I wanna zero in on the beginning of this book, Job 1. Because uh, in many ways, Job 1 causes for me way more questions than answers. Um, but it, it introduces the central theme of the book, in my opinion. So let's read, then we'll get at it. Uh, Job 1, starting in verse 6. <clears throat> now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. <clears throat> I don't know what that means. And also Satan was there. Also Satan. Right? <laughs> then... So already, lots of questions I got, okay? The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? He answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Awesome. And the Lord said to Satan, uh, uh, let me stop real quick. Uh, Satan is not his name. Do you know that this figure in the Bible does not have a name? Satan means accuser, means uh, uh, slanderer. Uh, a better translation might say the Satan. In the entire book, he's never given a name. Even in the Latin, uh, Lucifer, it's not a name. It's a title. It means morning star. In the New Testament, devil, uh, it means slanderer. Never is he given a name, just a title. The Satan, the accuser. Interesting. <clears throat> the Lord said, 
Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil? That word fear, if you look it up, that Hebrew word is translated in many ways. Sometimes it describes places in which they use the word awesome. So we're not talking like, I'm afraid of the boogeyman. We're talking about walking up to the Grand Canyons and having a sense of awe and respect and honor for something way larger than yourself. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, here it is. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and that man will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, the Satan, behold, all that he has in your hand, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So many questions. Let's pray. Father, would you come, Holy Spirit? Father, I ask that you would today um, break paradigms in people's hearts and minds about what they think about you, about who you are, and what you want from them. Come, Holy Spirit, and use your word to reveal who you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So many questions from this little bit of the book of Job. Uh, but this question that Satan asks, the Satan, the accuser asks, does Job revere God? We can even say worship. Does he, does he worship God for nothing? It's fundamental to the whole book and perhaps the whole Bible. The accuser is acknowledging the reality that when humans revere God, when they do what he wants, when they worship him, when they hold him in high esteem, when they give him lordship, when they obey him, life tends to work out. They flourish. This is throughout the Bible. They tend to do well. It's not that hard to see why. A businessman who has integrity, like the Bible tells us to have, a businessman who does what he says he'll do and he does it with excellence as unto the Lord, his business is going to do well. There's a reason the people of God have flourished throughout, the time, throughout history, right? But here the adversary is mocking God. He's saying the only reason Job worships you is because you've given him a bunch of stuff. Of course he's going to worship you. His life's awesome. He's got cable TV in his bedroom. Got two shower heads in the shower, right? Drives a Tesla. Of course he's going to worship you. It all worked out for Job. But take it away. And that little weak flesh spirit thing that you put in charge of earth, he'll curse you to your face. He doesn't love you, God. He loves your stuff. That's what's going on here. This is the accusation of the accuser. He's leveling something against God. What's the edge of the knife that he's stabbing into the heart of God? The edge of the knife is that Job doesn't love you for your own self. He doesn't pay attention to you because he likes you. He pays attention to you because you give him stuff. All of them, really, we could expand it, the accuser's accusation. All they want is for their life to work out, right? They don't want you, creator of heaven and earth. They don't want to walk with you in the cool of the evening. Their only interest to go to church or to worship or to pray is so you'll give them a good life. 
So you pad their bank accounts. Let them take three vacations every year. Tim Keller uses the language of mercenary. You know what a mercenary is? Mercenary is someone who could care less about the cause. Mercenary does not care that the enemy kidnapped your children. Mercenary does not care that the enemy took all your land. All they care about is the money. Mercenaries are hired guns. They're soldiers. They're not in, they're not in the fight for the direct cause of the fight. There's an ulterior motive for a mercenary, right? They just want to make a buck, and they're willing to kill people to do it. They don't care if you win or lose. They're not in it for that. They are using war for another reason, another gain, right? That's a mercenary. And Tim Keller says, uh, many of us, and the Satan <laughs> also, says we're mercenary in our faith. We just want the stuff that God has. We don't want God himself. And here in the very beginning of the book, this is what the accuser is saying. He doesn't love you. Humans don't pursue you and obey you because they want to be near to you. In fact, they don't have any interest in you at all. Uh, the edge of the, the point of the knife the accuser is trying to stab into the heart of God is this. They are using you, man. They're just using you. Now, in one sense, of course, he's partially right. None of us have anything that we could ever give to God. We can only take. He's the creator of all things. He gave us our life itself. That means that anytime we come to God, we're coming to him as a beggar in desperate need. All right, we can only have what Lewis calls at the beginning of our relationship with God, need love. We love him because we need him. This is true, right? Think about it. Many Christians become Christians because something goes south in their life. They have a horrible accident, right? Maybe a death in the family. Maybe they got fired, lost their job, relationship, divorced, and they hit rock bottom. And they come to God saying, if you'll but fix this circumstance, I'll give you my life. Just help me get through this. I'll start going to church. At the beginning, all of us come to God. It's almost unavoidable. We come to God because we want something else, right? Now, if you stay there long term, we begin to get confused about salvation itself. The question, we become unclear, about what we are saved from and what we are saved to. And then begin to get confused about what is the abundant life? What's the definition we're using for salvation and life? Here's, here's what I mean by this. I know it's kind of confusing. Here's what I mean. Are you saved primarily from addiction to a healthy lifestyle? Well, that's a part of it, praise his name. Is it the primary part of what it means to be a Christian? Are you saved primarily from bad habits to healthy habits. Well, good Lord, I, I hope that's in there, right? Are you saved primarily from ignorance to intelligence? That's definitely not true. I know a lot of Christians. <laughs> you got that? Did you get that in the front row there? <clears throat> Are we saved primarily from poverty and sickness? to health and wealth and material abundance. Can I, I don't like being sick. <laughs> I don't like not having enough money. And when I'm sick, I'm gonna ask God to heal me. And when I don't have enough, I'm gonna ask God to provide for me. And we can knock the prosperity gospel all we want, but that's the reality of my life. If I don't have enough, I'm gonna ask God to provide. Is that prosperity gospel? Do you think God doesn't want to heal? That he doesn't want to bless? Because if you think that, that's just as unbiblical as prosperity gospel. But... 
if those blessings are the primary substance of salvation, then the accuser is completely right. We are mercenaries. We don't want God for himself. We just want his stuff. We want help. We want material abundance. If those things are the primary things of salvation, then he's right. But let's remember who we're talking about here. This guy's the father of lies. He's the accuser. He's the deceiver. He's the slanderer. So what's he up to? What can we conclude from this question? Does, God, does Job serve God for nothing? Does he revere God for nothing? What's he saying about us and what's he saying about God? Well, on the human side, we can know that what he's getting at, this motivation of seeking God simply for the things we can enjoy, other things other than God, must be a failure of some sort, right? We can conclude that. It's a deception. It's a poor, shadowy substitute of what it must mean to know and love God, right? When our adoration of God, our obedience, our pursuit of God is simply motivated out of desire for other things, when we prefer creation over creator, what we must conclude from this is we must be missing the mark. In other words, if you only obey God because you want him to do things for you, you've apparently missed something foundational to what it means to be a Christian. If you only fast for the health benefits, if you only pray because you want to center your mind for a productive day, if you only read your Bible so you can get some historical facts to impress your small groups with, you've missed it. Something fundamental has been lost on you of what it means to be a Christian, and therefore all of your activity is missing the mark, right? Of course... When we begin to talk like this, we, we get uncomfortable, I get uncomfortable, because then I begin to ask myself, yeah, why, why do I obey? Why do I read the, what, what's the point? Why do I go to church? What am I really expecting to get out of this, all of this, this between God and I stuff? Like, what am I really hoping happens? because I volunteer or lead a small group or read my Bible. What's the real desired outcome for you personally? What is it? Well, let's just zoom in on the moment that we find ourselves in right now. Let's use that as an experiment. Why are you in this room right now? Well, there's, in reality, a plethora of reasons why all of you are in this room, me, me included, right? For some strange reason, some of you seem to like listening to an over-caffeinated ADD guy with dyslexia try to make sense of the Bible, okay? <laughs> Maybe for you, the content is just intellectual enough to keep you engaged. Maybe for you, it's like the jokes are just enough so you don't fall asleep. Of course, there are also some legit people that go here, like I said earlier, some remarkable dudes, man. I'd show up just to get to know them. I would. Do I get all that stuff? I don't know, but dude, that guy's legit. I want to hang out with him. I want some of his intelligence and discipline and uh, his, you know, I want the, some, of, some of his success to rub off on me. Shoot, I'll show up for that, huh? Come on, are we talking for real? Are we going to lie about this? All right, there's some legit people in here. I'll show up just to hang out with them. Oh, maybe you are single and that, and that real pretty girl sits over there. That's your incentive to show up, right? Of course, let's be real, guys. Oh, can we be honest? I know we're in church. Can we be honest about this? We all have different reasons why we're here, all right? And dude, listen, if you're a single guy, like today's your day. I'm setting you up. You can saunter over to her after the service, and you can be like, Chris's sermon was on point, wasn't it? <laughs> right? That whole motivation thing, right? Trying to help you out, man. We're, we're just getting started, though, aren't we? When it comes to the variety of real reasons that people actually show up and get involved in church and with God. Maybe all of this is to prove to your parents you're not a screw up. 
Maybe all this is to prove to your parents you're better than your siblings. Maybe all of this is just to prove to your wife you're not a chump or to prove to your small group you're really mature and spiritual. Now, this has dramatically changed in the past 60 years culturally. But 60 years ago, any small-town businessman who wanted to network and gain a good reputation better be in a pew on Sunday morning. If he wants that contract with the city, Mayor so-and-so sits over there, and Mayor so-and-so wants to know that you're a good, upright, moral man, so you better be in the pew on Sunday morning. All sorts of ulterior motivations we find throughout Christendom as to why people get involved with God and Christianity and the community of believers. So... We know that Satan's accusation is not a compliment, right? This is clearly not what God intended to. Does God, does Job honor God for nothing? Uh, means we've missed the point. Our hearts have gotten sideways. Uh, this is why uh, in the um, <clears throat> uh, Lewis's book, uh, Screwtape Letters, anyone ever read Screwtape Letters? It's a phenomenal read. If you've never read it, dude, pick it up. It's so good. Screwtape Letters is from the perspective of demons, and it's demons writing to demons. And so the enemy in Screwtape Letters is God. And it's um, uh, two demons. It's a lesser demon and a, and a greater one. And, and the greater one's trying to train the lesser demon as to how to, you know, seal the deal with his, I forget what they call them, client or something like that, you know. And so uh, one of them writes to the other and he says this. He says, our cause, now remember this is the enemy's cause, right, is never more in jeopardy than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him has seemed to have vanished. In other words, all incentives and motivations have disappeared and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. He's saying that our cause is never more in danger when all other motivations fail, fall to the side and that person decides to obey anyway. He's basically saying that we're up, we're done. You know, it's phenomenal. What does it say about God, this whole, this whole question? The accuser's trying to mock and belittle. He's poking holes at God's relationship to man. What is he saying? He's saying it's a fraud. He's saying the relationship's a sham, right? They don't really love you for you which can answer the question, what does God really want from you? What's his aim? What's his goal? He wants you to love him for his own sake. It means God has an overwhelming desire to be in a loving, trusting, intimate, enjoyable, authentic relationship with you for its own sake. In which... God is not a means to an end, but an end in and of himself. It reveals what God's after, doesn't it? He doesn't want brute loyalty or cold obedience or nose to the grindstone performance. Nose, what's that? Is that the right phrase? I'm not sure. He's after what? Your delight in him. Authentic enjoying of him. That's what he wants. Secondly, well, that's the, actually, that is the thing. <laughs> He's not after what you can give him, right? He just wants you. He just wants honest relationship that doesn't have false motives or ulterior agendas, right? And here's the deal. Here's the reality about this in, in, in life. So do you. <laughs> is there anything more offensive and gross than someone harboring ulterior motives of why they're treating you the way they're treating you? 
Isn't it gross? Have you guys ever experienced this in your life? Like you have this coworker who only acknowledges your presence when the boss is around. And he's like super kind to you when the boss is in the room. As soon as the boss walks out, like you're trash. He doesn't even acknowledge. It's gross, isn't it? Or the classic um, gold digger. You know that one? Beautiful young woman who found an old rich guy who will give her all the money she wants. She doesn't love him. She just wants the money. It's gross. We, it's, we're a, it's repulsive to us, isn't it? Well, it's repulsive to God too, right? We can see this for a mile away in our relationships, yet it's lost on us when it comes to our relationship with God, right? We don't think of God as being, as a being, with emotions and feelings and desires. But if you read the Bible, you're gonna see it's all in there, right? God is a God who mourns. He's a God who grieves. He's a God who rejoices. He's a God who has intentions that can be ignored, right? If that's not true, why do we find things in the Bible like don't grieve the Holy Spirit? Or when God is angry, he has emotions and feelings, right? What this says about God is really a paradigm shift for many Christians, because I think many Christians think God is someone to perform for, jump through these hoops, do the deal, read the Bible, right? Maybe I can avoid being struck by lightning or getting cancer, right? And that maybe I can even arrange the cards so that God will owe me something. Many, many Christians do life like this, right? If I can just arrange the cards so the boss of the cosmos will owe me, it's not a bad deal to have the boss owe you one, right? And many of us see God like a boss, a distant, weird, demanding, egocentric boss. But I should probably try to get him in my favor, so I'll go to church, right? And what we get here is God must not be interested in that kind of relationship at all. When we approach him like that, the enemy's mockery rings true. We only revere him for the stuff we can get. But I think God is just as grossed out by that as we are. <laughs> so how can we have, how can we not have a mercenary faith. Like what's the kind of relationship God's after? How can we, as scripture says, bless the Lord? How can we please him? Well, it's honestly not that different than any other relationship if you think about it, right? How do you begin any relationship with anyone? Well, you start doing more listening and less talking, right? If, you're, if, you, are, if you are in a relationship in which it is stressed and strained, let me give you some advice. Shut your mouth <laughs> and start listening. Start paying attention to what that person is saying underneath what they're saying. Listen, right? If you're in a relationship that's strained right now, you know the way you start making, making progress in that relationship? Is you start, try, you start to try to pay attention to their priorities. All of your arguments are really priority issues with your spouse and your friends. You think this is the higher priority and they think that is the higher priority. If you would like to see some peace in those areas, start paying attention not to communicating your priority, but listening to theirs. What do they re what's the most important thing to them? That's how relationships become, the gridlock is loosened. When you stop trying to get your opinion out there and you start trying to pay attention to what are they saying to me? What's going on under the surface, right? We start letting the things that break their heart break our heart. We empathize. We start to feel what they feel. We sh this is how any friendship goes, guys. You begin to share priorities. You love rock climbing. I love rock climbing. Let's go. 
You love, it's, it's a shared priority. It's how friendships flourish. If we're gonna be friends with God, we have to know what makes his heart tick. We have to know what he's after. What do you really want? And if we think it's cold, hard obedience, you've missed it. That's not God. He's not the boss up there saying, do better. That's you projecting all of your experiences onto the creator of the universe. God is not like man, right? We have to begin to understand what are his priorities. So there's lots of pictures you can go to in scripture to begin to understand what the priorities of God are. In fact, scripture itself is called his self-revelation. The entire book is for you to understand what his priorities are. Um, but there's one in particular that I want to zoom in on as we, let me just end it. Let me turn it to this way and then we'll, then we'll get out of here. I just want to look at one thing. And it's where God wants a prophet to know how he feels towards his people. He says, I want you to know exactly how I feel towards my people. Now, depending on who you think God is, you might think, oh, he's gonna fill that guy with rage and anger. He's in righteous indignation, right? He's gonna fill him with, he's gonna go, you know, just ah, tell people how morally dirty they are, maybe. Or you might think, oh, God's so loving. He's going to fill him with like hippy-dovey love and he's going he's to just be so chill and going around loving people and hugging us, right? That's neither. No, neither of those things is what God does. You know what he says to him? What's the most intimate, ideally enjoyable, satisfying relationship known to humanity? Marriage, I think. I think marriage is. I think it's supposed to be. He says, Hosea, I want you to go marry a whore. You know that whore that sits on the corner? Pursue her, fall in love with her, and commit yourself to her. Be faithful to her. She's going to cheat on you. She's going to be unfaithful to you over and over and over again. But you love her and keep loving her. We're getting to what God feels for you. It's not a surprise that in Revelations, what Revelation, sorry, if you're a Bible nerd, catch that one. Um, what we find at the end of all things is a marriage feast, a banquet in which the church is called the bride of Christ, right? So God says, I want you to feel my heart for humanity. I want you to feel how I feel towards them. I need you to know this, okay? She's gonna be unfaithful to you. Your heart is gonna be racked with pain She's gonna cheat on you and then look you in the eyes like nothing's wrong. And her unfaithfulness will feel to you like a thousand deaths. But despite her infidelity, I want you to have kids with her. I want you to have kids with her. And you can be pretty sure those kids aren't gonna be your kids, if you know what I mean. And I want you to name one of those kids, no mercy, because I'm done having mercy on my people. Lo rahama. The other kid, I want you to name him uh, Lo Ami. It literally means not my kid. 
not my people. Because you guys are not my people and I'm not your God. I don't know if you can feel, I don't know if your heart is just so cauterized that you can't feel the heart of God in this picture. And what you're seeing is a God who is grieving to the depths that the people that he loves and is faithful to have been unfaithful to him. And instead of dropping the hammer, instead of coming down with fire and brimstone, what does he do? He says, fall in love with her. Give your complete faithfulness to her, right? And if you read the book of Hosea, which I do, I hope you do, chapter two, there's this like whiplash moment. You're reading it and God's going through all these grotesque things. He's describing the way in which his people has been unfaithful to him, how they've gone after other level, other level lovers. <laughs> and it's like, it's gross, right? And then he says, therefore, like literally the verse before this is, uh, they've gone after other lovers. They've forgotten me, therefore. And you think he's just gonna be like, I'm gonna, right? And he says this, Hosea 2, therefore, I will allure her. It means entice. It means persuade and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. Whole bunch of context there. And there she shall answer us. Answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my ish. It's husband, lover, your, your a translation might say. And no longer my baal, my master, my Lord. For I will remove the names of other masters from her mouth and they shall be remembered no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Not what you expect from, her, from the unfaithful bride. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And I will sow for her myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is a remarkable picture of what God is after. Despite your faithlessness to him, he wants relationship based on love, not duty, not what you can get out of him. He promises this safety, but that's not the point. The point's verse 20, you'll know the Lord, right? and that it would be a relationship saturated in love for its own sake, right? Hosea obeys this, and of course, after a while, she leaves him, as uh, most people racked with guilt and shame do, do when they're in intimate relationships, they leave. And God says, uh, go again, again, and find her. This is Hosea 3, and he does. He goes and finds her again. Guess where he finds her? He finds her being sold in the market as a sex slave, more than likely, from what we know about her. Being sold as a slave. And Hosea buys her back. Can you, can you imagine this exchange? Can you imagine his wife seeing him approach the market table and thinking, oh no, he found me. 
He's probably just going to buy me just to humiliate me and beat me, right? Can you imagine the fear and trepidation in her as she sees her husband, whom she has cheated on and left, approach and buy her back? What must be going on in her head? And what God says is, no, no, go buy her back and love her. Again, like I love Israel. Read the book, man. So I'm not making this stuff. This is in the Bible, okay? So I don't know what kind of religious jargon has skewed the character of God for you. But today, God, through his word, is saying, my love for you is stronger than your unfaithfulness. You know the answer to mercenary faith? Love. The answer to mercenary faith is receiving the unconditional love of the Father. It's the only thing that can get through our backward hearts that he is better than everything else when we experience his love, right? My love for you is that like a husband whose desire is reconciliation, despite all you've done. I want you to love me for my own sake. I want you to know me. For I want you, not because of what you can give me, because I made you and I love you. And I will pay the price for the debt of sin so that you can love me without guilt, without shame, so that you can love me without this uncontrollable impulse we have in us to earn back our favor and value. He says, I don't want any of that. I'll move that. I'll take that out of the way. I will pay the price. Love me for who I am, right? This is remarkable. Jesus paid the price so that we could know the love of the Father, and you are saved from being alone in your sin to knowing and loving God. That is the primary content of salvation, right? So let me just end with one story from um, John Wimber. If you know John Wimber, he was the founder of the Vineyard, and he was very successful at this time. He was a church consultant, and he was um, speaking at a conference, and his buddy comes up to him and says, John, there's this lady at my church. She's kind of, but she says she has a word from the Lord for you. And John's thought was like, dude, come on, man. I I like you. I want to be your friend. Don't do this to me. Come on, right? So he tries to avoid her all during the whole conference. You know, some of you have heard this before. I've told this story before. Um, tries to avoid her. And finally, his friend comes up. Hey, listen, John, she, she won't leave me alone. She, she wants to meet with you. She wants to talk. And, and John's like, dude, come on, man. Like, look, like midlife crisis. Like, she's, who knows? Let's, you know. But, but okay, fine, whatever. Tell her to meet me up here at this time, and, and we'll, whatever. I'll hear the word, whatever. So John goes up there, and here, here she comes, frompy. She's coming up the hill, she, you know. And... And, uh, and here comes this lady, and, and she just, she starts crying. And John's like, oh, no. We're going to have an incident, you know. He's like looking around. <clears throat> She's crying. And, but he says it just progresses. It's not like, it's like, uh, uh, it's like heaving, like sobbing. You know, he's going on and on in like five, ten minutes. And finally, he's, he's, he's so embarrassed and frustrated. Lady! My buddy said you got a word from me. I got to go. Like, what's the deal? Right? He'd had it. It's crazy. Insane. And the lady looks up and tears all, you know, look at me crying, eyes all puffy. And she says, that's it. She said, God's weeping for you. And he said, like, it bypassed his intellect it bypassed his theology. Like he didn't, he didn't have defenses for that. 
Like we have defenses for theology, you know? We have defenses for stuff. We don't have defenses for kindness. It just gets past it, right? And he said it changed the course of his life. This idea that God mourns for you, why do you think he died? Do you think he died so he could just be this oppressive overlord and get you to do certain things? No, he died because he loves you. And he's mourning for the death that you're walking in. The, the compassion of God is the motivation for the whole ship, y'all. Yeah. The mercy of God, him seeing you in his heart breaking for what he sees in your life is the motivation for it all. And until we begin to understand the current of the heartbeat of God, you're missing out on what it means to be a Christian. You're not going to be on mission with the Lord because you're going to try to be earning it. You're doing all the right things to get him to owe you. It's off the, it's not, not, that's not, you can't, that's not even on the radar, right? It's his compassion for us, his compassion for humanity that motivates the whole thing. And it gets past our radar, we don't have defenses for God mourns for you. He sheds tears for you. And until our hearts can begin to soften to the compassion and priorities of God, I'm, I just don't know, man. You're, you're on the outside looking in, as far as I can tell. Because then what's the motivation, y'all? What's the, why, do we, why are we gonna start, why are we inviting people? Why are we gonna go reach out and, and love on people? What's the motivation? If we miss this, we've missed it all. The motivation is the heartbeat of God for humanity, that his heart broke for us. And if you're some crusty old guy who has no room for compassion, you've sealed yourself in death, man. You've sealed, you've, you've done, you're the, you put the rock on the tomb. Becoming a Christian is a, a warming of the heart, right? A softening of the heart to what? The compassion of God the mercy of God over you. Let me pray. God, we have to confess and acknowledge the hardness of our heart. God, if we're gonna do this, if we're gonna follow you, try to be obedient to you, we just have to confess from the get-go. Sometimes our motives are skewed. God, sometimes we have ulterior motives. We don't love you for yourself. We just admit right now Sometimes we just want your stuff. Have mercy on us, God. Lord, forgive us. God, would you come, Holy Spirit, and over some of our hearts in this room that it's just, it's become so hard. We've, we've been hurt. So there's, it's just, a, it's, a, it's an instinctual protective mechanism that some of us just can't help. We just harden off our hearts. We harden off the parts of us that would feel compassion. God, have mercy.